Hi, everyone. Just want to let you know that we had a microphone failure during the recording of this episode. So uh, you'll notice a noticeable difference in audio quality about six or seven minutes in. Sorry about that. It's me, not you. Thanks for listening. This is Content Content, a monthly podcast featuring the people behind the content. I'm Ed Marsh. This is episode number eight, recorded February 15th, 2016. It's been a frigid President's Day weekend here in New Jersey as snow is starting to fall. Today's guest is Sarah O'Keefe, the owner and founder of Scriptorium in North Carolina. So welcome, Sarah. Um, is it a little bit warmer where you are in North Carolina? It is a lot warmer, but unfortunately it is sleeting and the roads are icy and we are stuck at home. But the good news is that tomorrow it will be 50 degrees and sunny, so things are not as bad as they might be. Nice, nice. It's about 19 degrees here. We're supposed to get uh, between one and four inches of snow and perhaps a little covering of ice. So uh, thankfully, uh, not going anywhere today. That's Fahrenheit, isn't it? Y- yeah, yeah. Mm. Actually, our wind chills this weekend were in the negative 20 to negative 30 range. So I literally didn't leave the house yesterday. <laughs> so it made it a nice cozy Valentine's Day. Um, so you could find out more about Sarah at scriptorium.com, the uh, place that she founded. And she tweets at Sarah O'Keefe, all one word. Uh, before we go on, I have to uh, bring up the show's first fanboy moment. Um, in 2013, I have attended the LavaCon conference in Portland, Oregon, and I ran into Sarah, who said, hello, Ed, and I was, I just immediately went and gushed to my fiance that Sarah O'Keefe knows who I am. She knows who I am. I was um, so thrilled, and that really made my week, so uh, thank you, Sarah. Thank you for knowing who I am. <laughs> well, I'm delighted that I made your week, and I only wish that there were more people like you where all I have to do is say hi, because sadly, this does not seem to work for most people. <laughs> Sarah has literally written a book on technical communication and content strategy. She is the co-author of both Technical Writing 101 and Content Strategy 101. Uh, Sarah gives away the entire Content Strategy book at contentstrategy101.com, and uh, maybe we'll find out how that's working out for her. Now, Sarah, your bio notes that you have an aversion to checked luggage. Uh, I'm about to go on vacation for eight days tomorrow. Should I not pack a full suitcase? Uh, you pro- Well, it depends. <laughs> I'm a consultant, so the answer to everything is it depends. But what I found right. for myself is that when, when I travel, the stress of wondering whether my bag is going to turn up on the other end, and thus the stress of wondering whether I will have um, the clothes that I you know, actually need on the other end is not worth it. So what I've chosen to do, uh, certainly 100% of the time when I travel for business and about 80 or 85% of the time when I travel for vacation is to limit the amount of stuff that I've packed such that I can simply live out of a carry-on. Ah, see, my problem... So fashion has to give way. <laughs> <laughs> see, I'm an overpacker, so uh, I bring everything and and then some. Okay, so this is round four or five of this editing of the podcast because we've had some audio issues, but I think we're okay. So Sarah, um, why don't you tell us about your journey in technical communication, uh, how you started Scriptorium, and uh, how you evolved into moving into the content strategy space. So my evolution into freelancing was was uh, is actually kind of an interesting one. My very, very first freelancing job, I actually got due to a confluence of fairly random events having to do with 
my manager at the time who had worked previously in the video game or the software game industry, who still had some contacts in that industry, wow. and one of his contacts asked him if they happened if he happened to know anybody who was available to freelance who knew PageMaker probably 2.0 or something mm. like that, but anyway, who knew PageMaker and who spoke fluent German. Oh wow. And Brad said, Brad Hessel said, uh, why actually I do? <laughs> and he sent them to me. <laughs> so my job, my very, very, very first freelancing job was in fact cleaning up uh, not just the formatting, but also the translation of a video game manual for something that had originally been produced in Germany and then badly translated. Okay. Of course, I had no professional translation experience, but oh. I knew enough to clean up the document. You know, I could read the English and say, this isn't quite right, and then go back to the German, figure out what they were trying to say, and fix it. So that was how I got into freelancing, kind of on the side, and I did that, you know, here and there for a while. But in terms of actually starting Scriptorium and actually going into this full time, what happened was that I worked for a software startup. And they did one of these wonderful hockey stick up kind of things. We went from <laughs> 80 people when I started there to 500. And oh, wow. the local congressman came and did the ribbon cutting at the building and, you know, all this kind of stuff. And then they did the hockey stick back down, which had to do with some acquisitions and some mergers and some CEOs that didn't get along with each other. Uh, okay. And so as a result, many of us, of course, including me, were laid off. And I thought to myself, you know, I was doing a really good job here. I was good at this. And I was leading a group, and I was having a great time, but I got laid off because of um, a, you know, personal issues amongst these various senior leaders that had nothing to do with my performance. <sighs> and I decided I didn't like that. Hmm. And that was bad. Uh <laughs> So after careful consideration, I went for a couple of interviews and this and that. And there were jobs to be had. That wasn't really the issue. Okay. But after thinking about it for a while, I decided that if I was going to you know, lose money or uh, lose my job due to the incompetence of people, I would prefer for it to be my own incompetence <laughs> and not you know, other people's mistakes. So that was 1996-97. And okay. uh, this is what I've been doing ever since. Oh, wow. So... Um... You're in North Carolina. Was that um, were you? Have you been in North Carolina your life, and you, that's why you're there, or how did, how did, they, how did you come here? Why North Carolina? I guess. <laughs> well, I moved here. Um, I actually moved around a lot when I was a kid. Okay. Uh, growing up because of my parents' job, but I moved here to go to college, and I've basically been here ever since. I decided I've had enough of moving and mm. have stuck around. Okay, so you started Scriptorium and. You were primarily a technical communication shop or you content strategy. Uh, tell us a little bit about the company. So from day one, the thing that I've always been interested in is tools and technologies and process around technical communication or technical writing. Oh, nice. Okay. So it's always been, you know, in the olden days, in 1997, it was a <laughs> lot of, hey, can you make me a frame maker template? Hey, can you make me a WebWorks publisher template to convert this stuff? So there was always a programming element in the sense that we were manipulating information to get it from format A to format B. But okay. most of what we did early on was very um, 
I, I don't want to say very small necessarily, but the scope was smaller than what we're doing now. So about maybe 10 years or so ago, content strategy comes along and we start being asked to do things that are much less uh, technical in the sense of, hey, can you just go fix this weird thing that I can't figure out how to program, and much more strategic in the sense of, we need this stuff on our website, we're not quite sure how to get it there, can you help us? Um, we want our business to do a better job of integrating tech com content and training content and tech support content. Can you help us? So we're centered around technical communication, technical content, but we're seeing a lot more overlap with uh, training, technical marketing, technical support, and some of the other organizations that do produce content inside the organization. And these days, our projects uh, last longer and start earlier. So can you do some analysis? Can you figure this out? Can you figure out what our strategy needs to be? And then once you do that, can you implement it for us? Interesting. So how did people come to you originally? How did they find you? How did they know that you were out there and you were the people or the person um, to do this kind of stuff? So originally it was pretty simple in that I had been in a group of almost 50 people um, that all got laid off. So uh, my initial client base was 50 people that sort of scattered into various high-tech companies within the triangle. Um, over time, it's evolved into a word-of-mouth kind of thing. You know, as you said, we go to places like LavaCon, like ID World, like TCOM, and some of these other conferences, and we meet people there. And eventually, when they have this type of need, they come back to us. So it's a lot of word of mouth. So you're in the uh, North Carolina Research Triangle area then? Yep. Mm -hmm. Okay, cool. So, okay, so you're talking about these different conferences. And as a business, what do you get out of it? I know I've seen Bill Swallow, who's a friend of mine, and I met Gretel at um, Information Development World last year. Um, and I know they stand around, and I know there's a lot of booth, and I know the one of the things we loved at Information Development World was that uh, it was chocolate hour and uh, Scriptorium had all the chocolate and the good stuff. So how do you, you know, how do you kind of, I guess, from a business perspective, how do you choose which conferences have value um, and, you know, kind of what do you direct your employees to do at a conference other than just kind of get that out there and spread the Scriptorium name? We look for conferences that are populated with people who are interested in content and interested in solving content problems. Um, the sort of canonical profile of a client or a potential client of ours is somebody who has a content problem that they know they need to solve and that they don't exactly know how to solve. And at what point does that happen? What point does that light bulb go off for content people or a manager or a business you know, head of a business saying, hey, we've got all this stuff or we don't have enough stuff or we've got a some sort of content problem, when does that happen? When does that realization happen? It used to be, as I said, it used to be a technical issue. It was, this template is broken, or I can't quite get this conversion to work. Let's go find an expert that can help us with that. That was kind of version one. What happens now is that you have an organization that recognizes that they have a content problem, and this is much more of a business-focused content problem. Hmm. So what we see... Uh, by far, the most common problem is actually translation localization. Okay. They 
they're translating more and more and more stuff into more and more and more languages, and they come to the realization that, you know what, we are, we're just doomed here. We cannot scale our current workflow. And what a company will recognize is that the inefficiencies that they have in their current workflow, whatever those are, you know, those little things that you do over and over again that are just kind of stupid, but you put up with it because it's not that big a deal. Well, it's not that big a deal to do two hours worth of fixes in English once a month. Mm. And it's even not that big a deal to do two hours worth of fixes times eight languages once a month. But all of a sudden, when you're looking at 20 languages, and it's two hours per language per release, and you're releasing, it used to be once a year, but now it's every three mm. months, now we have a problem, right? So scalability is actually the most common issue that leads people to call us up and say, we need help. It's an issue of, this can't continue because we're delivering more and more formats and all those little inefficiencies are killing us. So that's one is, you know, just okay. straight up inefficiency. Um, the other one is a recognition that the content that's being delivered isn't doing its job. Hmm. We put out tens of thousands of pages of stuff <laughs> and yet nine, you know, 30% of our tech support calls are how do I do this installation procedure, which is documented? So why are they calling and asking support for help when there is a documented installation procedure? And the answer nearly always is because the document and installation procedure is either A, not very good, or B, can't be found. Or, or you know, C, both. But, <laughs> but one of those two. If it's a really good procedure, but I can't find it, it doesn't matter. Right. 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 So writing a really good procedure, although it's a prerequisite to delivering decent content, it's not sufficient because you also have to make it available. Right. Okay. So how much do you see um, the bad writing side of it? Or is it more just the efficiency side? Um, you know, we all had our experiences with some bad writers, um, but do people know that they have bad content? That's an interesting that's an interesting <laughs> question and one that I'm slightly reluctant to answer just yeah. thinking about um you know our current customers and whether they're going to feel as though they're being they're being picked on hmm. but um let, let me say it this way um there are many there are many good writers out there trained not trained whatever and there are many 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 terrible writers out there <laughs> some of whom are trained as tech writers and some of whom are not so I don't see a lot of correlation between, you know, I have formal training versus I'm a good writer. Um, but what we do run into is that we have so many cases where people are being asked to write who don't have any background, any training, and any, they have the right knowledge, they have the technical knowledge, but they haven't been told how to write a decent procedure. So, for example... Okay. You get these cases where you need to sit somebody down and say, when you write instructions, you need to write steps. You know, and a step mm -hmm. is an action, and an action has a result, and then you move on to the next step. With most people, if you explain that to them and you show them what that looks like, they get it. And they may or may not become an award-winning writer, <laughs> but they can be competent. So I think a lot of this is actually on the organization. Okay. Because they look at somebody and say, hey, Ed, you're, you look bored. Go over <laughs> here and be a writer. Right, right, right. And, so, and you have no background, right? right and no right. training and no chance. 
So do you see that where a lot of companies just think, oh, you have a copy of Word, you can be a writer or, you know, you're a developer, you can also write the documentation. Are you seeing a lot of that? Or is there still a lot of places that you're going to that has teams of technical writers or a sole technical writer? It it really it really does depend. Um, okay. We do see a lot of professional tech writing teams. Uh, we rarely see sole technical writers simply because it's not it's not that they don't exist. It's that they don't have problems that are big enough for them to call us, right? Okay. The the return that you get from engaging a content strategy consultancy like us does require a sort of large-ish content effort. If okay. if the only content you're producing is one writer, then um, we can't, we can add value to that, but we're too expensive, basically. Gotcha. Okay, so you have a new client, they come in, they contact Scriptorium, and mm -hmm. um, they need help. And they say, okay, please, please save us from our, our, our translation hell. Where do you start? How do you come in as a company? And what's your process kind of helping to help them out? The first thing that we typically do is we will go in and say, all right, what do you have? Um, okay. What kind of content do you have that exists? Uh, and not just the tech writers, but other content out there. And this is typically called a content audit. Mm -hmm. So you kind of go through and look at what's there. Is it up to date? Is it any good? Is it accurate? You know, does it actually describe mm -hmm. the product in an accurate way? And is it complete? Does it um, does it cover all the things that you need to cover to actually document the product, you know, correctly? Okay. So we do that kind of work first and kind of look at it. We also do what amounts to a tools audit. What are your tools? What is your mm -hmm. technology? Mm -hmm. How are you using them? Um, and then what we look for, and I've told people, it, it kind of makes them glaze over, but what we essentially do is management consulting for content. Mm. So... We do a gap analysis. We do a needs, you know, what do you need? What are your requirements? What do you need to be doing? Hmm. What is the gap between what you're currently doing and what you need to be doing? And how do we bridge that gap? How do we get there? So to give you an example of this, you know, you mentioned Word. Um, Word does some things pretty well, and then <laughs> there are some things it doesn't do quite so well. You don't say. <laughs> I, I do. Uh, and... <laughs> We, we like to say it's no coincidence at all that Microsoft Word's product name is actually four letters. So <laughs> it, the, the question then becomes, okay, can you close this gap with your existing tools? Okay. And, and if not, is it worth the investment? You know, what are the other okay. tools you could be using? How much is that going to cost? Is it worth the return? Um, some typical business goals that we identify are things like, Translation takes too long. We need to cut that delay. You know, we want to be able to ship in Brazil in a month after we ship in the U.S., not three months and not six months. Okay. Um, we are spending 40 hours reformatting things before they can go to the website. Mm. Mm. You know, it takes a long time to do those conversions and clean them up and QA them, those kinds of things. So we're looking for those holes in the process where there's friction and where there's effort, or you run into a thing where uh, a technical writer is writing a procedure and a training developer is copying and pasting and reformatting that procedure. So again, effort, hmm. not value added. You know, those are the kinds of things we look for. 
how can we make it such that the technical or the content creator's job is to do content and not to reformat things and wrestle with Word and try and get the, the numbering to behave and, you know, output bad HTML and then have to clean it up. Those are not value-added activities. Hmm, true. So that, true. that's what we're looking for is how do we make that stuff go away so that you and I can focus on the stuff we care about, which is right. the information. Yes, exactly. And I finally gotten to that point at my job. And it's so, so rewarding to be in that kind of place, even though we're not doing any translation. Uh, but it brings me to my next point. So um, we talked about Word, but we also know that um, Scriptorium is also a very big, or well, am I correct in assuming that Scriptorium is a big data shop or a structured offering shop? About 80% of the work we do is XML. Oh really? And nice. about yeah, and about eighty percent of that is Dita. Okay. Oh, so yeah, very very heavy into Dita. It's not that we think it's the only solution out there, but given the kinds of problems that people ask us about, it's a really good solution right now. Right now, that's an interesting thought um, because I know a lot of people think, oh, Dita, you know, XML is twenty years old, Dita is twenty years old, and uh, there's got to be something else out there, but. Um, I don't know what else is available. Can you kind of maybe um, share some of the other alternatives to XML or, well, and well, I guess in a structured authoring world, is it XML or bust or is there other stuff that we can look to? There, there are a couple of different, uh, you know, categories of solutions that you can look at, but ultimately, when it comes down to a large group of content creators who need to produce information that is manageable and that is repeatable and that is structured in the sense of organized consistently, um, you typically do land on XML as a solution. It's what we have right now. There are, there are of course, other choices. There are wikis out there. There are various flavors of markdown. There are people mm. working in things like Google Docs and right. producing all their docs in Google Docs. And those things all work to solve a certain category of problem. But okay. what XML does extremely well is help you to provide a foundation for solving not a specific problem, but sort of the big picture, which is, okay, if I encode everything in XML, then I can later move it into lots of other places. And I don't really have to know ahead of time what those are. So if you look at something like a Madcap Flare, which I think is actually you know a very good tool. Right, okay. The issue that you have, that I have with Flare, is that if it does not solve the set of problems I'm trying to solve, then I'm basically dead in the water. So in other words, if you look at Flare and you say, it does what I need it to, then you're good. And you should, you know, you should go down that road and life will be good. Um, the most for how of the right and but you know if your runway is three to five years then that's probably the right answer okay you know and and that would be true for any commercial tool that you look at if you can solve the problems that you have today with that tool with what it has built in with minimal sort of configuration finagling nightmare then that is a great solution what XML in general buys you is the ability to solve problems um, possibly expensively, but to solve problems mm. that commercial tools cannot solve right now because you have an edge case. 
And the issue is that so many people have edge cases. Um, <laughs> we've been asked to produce man pages out of XML. Oh, wow. We've produced JSON out of XML. We've okay. produced um, all sorts of crazy things. And we've used it as a connector to other systems across the organization, which could be absolutely anything. Some weird learning management system that nobody else has. Hmm. Some homegrown thing that we need to push content into and we need to find a way to manipulate the source content we have to get it in there automatically because, you know, nasty reformatting is not really an option. Hmm. Okay, interesting. So you mentioned the cost and you know that, um, we know that moving to an XML solution isn't always a cheap or short process. Uh, when you come into a client and you recommend that conversion, um, well, first, I guess, are people more aware of the structured authoring, the XML-based authoring? And two, are there kind of, what are the roadblocks that you're seeing that people say, oh, no, other than, you know, I can't afford it? Or, you know, what are the reasons that people are saying are kind of throwing up roadblocks if they are at all? So first of all, the most of the people that come to us have already decided that they want XML. Okay. Now, how do they get to that? Well, how do you how do they get to that? Do you know? In with varying degrees of of, of research, <laughs> in some cases they've done their research and they're right, and it needs to happen. In other cases, it's just you know what this XML thing sounds cool, and I think it'll solve all my problems. Okay. Um, I would say that we it, it's not that common, but we spend more time trying to talk people out of XML than we spend trying to talk people into XML. Okay. So, in other words the set of customers that comes in will have a few every year that say, I want XML, and we look at whatever it is that they're doing and say, you know what, you're better off over here in this hmm. not XML tool that okay. will solve your problems for now at you know a much lower cost than what you're asking us to spend. Um, so, but you also have to, you know, you have to be careful because we see a specific corner of the market. People know that we do a lot of XML, they know that we do a lot of data, they know we're very technical, that's who calls us. Okay. So I always want to be very careful about saying, you know, this is what the market is doing because I'm not so sure what the market is doing. I can only tell you what the people that I hear from are doing. Makes sense. Um, okay. But the people that I hear from, um, usually they've already decided that XML and very often DITA is the answer that they're looking for. And, you know, most of the time they're right. Um, so hmm. the problem set that they have revolves around reuse, around uh, localization, and around formatting automation, and then secondarily around um, connections, uh, integrations across systems is kind of the big new thing that we're seeing in the sort of second wave going forward. Okay. Um, so those are the kinds of problems that they come to us with. Now, in the course of the sort of upfront assessment that we usually do, we also build out the business case. So okay. we're coming back and saying, look, it's going to cost about this much to go into DITA or XML, um, you know, this much for the content management system, this much for this, that, and the other thing, all the pieces and parts, and here is how you can justify it. You know, you have cost savings over here, you have revenue over here, you have better content sharing over here, and we can quantify all of those things. You can go to market faster. You can improve your time to market, and that's worth, you know, quite a lot in a big company. So we look at all of those things and we help to build out the business case because at the end of the day, the people who sign the checks 
are really only interested in that question. What's the business case? Can we justify this? Uh, how are you justifying it? And is this a high enough priority to make it worth our while? Interesting. Yeah, um, I think we have a problem with that in the tech comm community as a whole about how do we sell our value? And I think that's as long as I've been a tech communicator for 20 plus years, I think we've always said that was the problem. Um, are you and you're seeing now that people are actually interested in that other than we have to have documentation. It's a actually I've been called a necessary evil once or twice in my career. Um, are you seeing that still or are people slowly coming around to see that content is kind of important and that it's worth the spend? So people are definitely coming around and there's a definite change there, especially at the upper levels, you know, at the executive levels. Okay. And the reason that I think they're coming around is uh, there's a couple of things, but the, the really big one is that historically, you know, 10 years ago, hmm. historically, um, marketing and sales content were perceived as pre-sales content and therefore high value, Right. We'll put tons of money into marketing and sales. We'll make our proposals beautiful. We'll make our website shiny because we're trying to get you know, these people, these potential customers to buy. And then they buy, and then there's this fulcrum inflection point, and now they're customers. Well, now mm. our job is to fulfill the customer requirements as inexpensively as possible, right? So there's the sort of pre-sales, shiny, post-sales, who cares? Now, mm. What's changed is the recognition that some enormous percentage of people do research ahead of time. Um, and I, I, don't, I don't have the citation in front of me, but I think it was PricewaterhouseCoopers, and I think it was 80% of U.S. customers, U.S. retail sort of buyers, are doing online research before they buy. Okay. That's so you think, right. and, you know, and that, that kind of makes sense conceptually. You know, before I go buy a tablet or a set of headphones or anything else, I'm going to go look online and I'll look at the shiny stuff, but you know, you know a lot about audio, right? So you're going off and when you look for a headset, you're not looking for the shiny, beautiful one. You're looking mm. for specifications. Does it do what I want it to? Does it have, you know, the range that I'm looking for? You're looking for technical information. Okay. Right? So you go look up the technical information. Now, A, Scenario A is you can't find it. So you decide that particular headset sucks and you rule it out, unless you can find a friend who's bought it, which is a whole other side conversation. But scenario A, you can't find the information. You say, forget it. You cross them off your list. Scenario B is you find the information, and you know it's the, the data you're looking for. I mean, they have to meet your requirements. But you find the information, and it's a very, very, very pricey headset. But the information you find is ugly, and it's poorly written, and it doesn't make a lot of sense, and you're having trouble actually parsing it because it's so badly presented. And so you look We've at your premium there. headset that you're about to spend a gazillion dollars on, and you say, I don't think so. Hmm. And scenario C is you, you, know, you find the information. It's nicely, it doesn't have to be beautiful, but it is nicely presented. It makes sense. They've done a competent job, and you say to yourself, these people know what they're doing. I think I'll buy that one because they have given me the information I was looking for and they've given me a degree of confidence from their technical content that the actual product is going to be a good one. So if I'm the VP of whatever at Headset Manufacturers, Inc., 
Hmm. I can think about technical content as being a pre-sales investment. I've got to get it right because if I don't, people will go look it up and decide not to buy this thing. So, so are there no, go ahead, mm-hmm. sorry. Well, so it's no longer post-sales content is the issue. Got it's it. both. Oh, I just lost my thought. Okay, so that's what I want to ask. So to follow up on that, you've got pre-sales and now, you know, we've got TechCom coming into the pre-sales process. Um, but overall, where are the metrics or how are the, how are people getting, or how are vice presidents and senior management getting that kind of information about return on investment that, okay, I've spent all this money with Scriptorium, we've moved to structured authoring, uh, our teams are collaborating better theoretically. Um, how do, is there metrics that you are putting in place or that people can put in place to kind of measure the effect of that technical content on the sales process? So there are, there are internal metrics that you can look at for efficiency, and that's usually where these projects are justified. So it's things like increased reuse, uh, cheaper translation, faster time to market. Okay. Those are all, to a certain extent, kind of internal. When you start looking at external metrics, that, what you're asking for, which is how do we know that the customers are happier, what you start to get into there are things like um, net promoter scores, which are a measurement of customer satisfaction. You can look mm-hmm. at uh, return customers. Do they turn around and buy again? Or mm-hmm. are you only getting new customers? Mm-hmm. Um, you can look at technical support and call deflection. If you're delivering better content that's easier to find, you should, as you improve your content, you should see a corresponding reduction in the number of people calling tech support asking for help. Um, So call deflection is another one. But basically, we look at web metrics. You know, a lot of the stuff that's been done around websites and web metrics is very, very helpful Mm. to work through this question of, is this information adding value? For translation localization, you can look at, okay, we added um, Czech as a language. (laughs) Has our market share increased in the Czech Republic? Is it increasing faster than it is in countries where we are not delivering in the local language? Hmm. Um, So you can, yeah, you can do a lot with uh, just sort of the general uh, business metrics around how is this going and, you know, what are the sales like? Nice. Cool. Okay. So one of the things that you mentioned was um, social recommendations or, you know, getting a word from friends. How does that factor into the whole strategy part of it or does it? The Again, the research indicates that um, a recommendation from a friend, and especially a friend who is also interested in the same thing that you're interested in, is far more powerful than anything else that's that's available. Anything. Does that, does that include stuff like forums, like a, like a, uh, like for headphones, there's headfi.org. Does that factor in as well? You, you get into reputation, right? So if okay. you're on that forum and you know the person, uh, not personally necessarily, but you know that, you know, that particular user always gives good advice. And then that user mm-hmm. says to you in response to a question or, you know, in, in a different context says, I really like this. This is a good answer. This is what I would do. That carries a lot of weight. So um, if, you know, if I were in the market for headphones and I called you up and said, or even sent you an email and said, hey, this is what I need, and you said, try this, mm. that would carry a ton of weight. 
Um, if I were go if I were to go to a forum as a non-expert, that wouldn't carry a lot of weight. But if you go to the forum where you've been for years and years and years, and you kind of know the players, then that's essentially like having a personal friend tell you this is the right answer. And how are companies working with that or responding to all of that? So that presents a huge problem for companies mm. because those recommendations are essentially outside their control, right? Right, that's right. And so there, there's some things you can do with that. Um, certainly working in the forums and making yourself useful as a corporate employee. Now, you have to be careful with that. You have to say, look, I work for thus and such manufacturer. Here's some information for you. Mm. You know, you can't, you can't do some of the skeevy things like, um, you know, pretending not to be an employee, but then constantly right. recommending their stuff. But you can, if you're um, candid about your affiliations, you can then provide some information. And if you're allowed to provide information that your company says, we want you to be our representative, then you can probably provide official information. Okay. You know, this is our company position on whatever. Uh, so that will carry a lot of weight. But uh, the other thing that companies can do, and a lot of them have tried this, is to engage your um, your super users, your fans. So mm. you it turns into a thing of, oh, we've noticed that you've bought a lot of equipment from us over the year, and we'd like to invite you to a top-secret customer advisory board. We'd mm. like to send you a free new product that we're working on and get some feedback from you. Um, we'd like to give you moderation rights in this forum that we own, you know, because you're kind of the guy there. Nice. So how, you know, would you like to participate? So this is the buzzword of uh, engagement, customer engagement, and kind mm. of turning that into a whole ecosystem where that line between user, advocate, and employee, and some other things, they all kind of blur together. It's not as clean as you might think. Mm, interesting. And I'm sure there's a whole set of ethics and stuff around that that people and companies have to deal with. They always get caught. Always. <laughs> so, and sometimes it blows up and sometimes they, and, they get away with it. Yeah. So, Okay, let's take a step back again and talk about um, the tools and technologies. And you said that you're finding a lot of conversions now with the structured authoring and with DITA. Um, I've always found it, and I think in general, people think that it's very difficult to get XML or data-based content into a web-based content management system. Uh, would you agree with that? And you know, how how is that working now? Is it easy to get? Like I know I worked with Drupal for a long time, and uh, I'm playing with WordPress now too. Um, and there's no simple way of just saying, okay, here's my data map, um, and we're probably getting way technical here. But here's my data map. I export it to HTML, but these things run on a database. How does that content go along and work with a database-based content management system, or does it? So first, let's, let's kind of put these in context. The DITA content is a source storage format. Okay. And, the, and web CMS, as a general rule, is a presentational sort of customer-facing layer. Okay. Um, so once you have a Drupal or a WordPress or something like that, what you're trying to do is show or give information to somebody. Um, and you're right; they're not good connectors between them, where right. you can just say go from here, you know, from A to B with ease. However, we have XML, which is pretty rigorous, and we have a database like Drupal. Um, 
what we have done, and, and I think this is an opportunity for a, a website we've been working on. So what we've done specifically with WordPress is we took the DITA content. Okay. And we needed to get that out to a site called learningdita.com that we managed. Oh, right. Okay. Yes. Okay. Right. So the, the source material, the source e-learning content is in DITA. It's in an open source GitHub project called DITA okay. Training. So it lives over there in, in the DITA world. And it's not only DITA, but it's actually e-learning DITA. So it's very, very highly marked up. It's okay. actually pretty complicated. And then over here you have WordPress, which at the end of the day is basically HTML on the front end. But what we did was we took the DITA content and we wrote a style sheet or a transform that turns it into something that we can uh, ingest directly into the WordPress database. So we didn't go out to HTML. Oh, okay. Oh, really? Right. We, yeah, we stayed down on that lower layer and said, okay, go from DITA move it over here into an XML format that WordPress understands that's compatible with its database, and then slurp it into the database, and now we've got it in the database, and we can use all the fun WordPress tools to make it do what we want it to. Huh. So oh, to well, present it. To present, okay, that makes sense. So then how do you deal with versioning where, um, you know, I know with Drupal with nodes, you have, okay, um, you know, you're making references to a node, which would be a topic, for example. How, if you were constantly publishing an online help content to that database, how do you deal with versioning and dealing with reconciling links that went to an earlier version of the topic? Does the database handle that, or is that something that you have to build in? Right. Well, that's, that's sort of the nightmare, right, is if you're making <laughs> incremental changes, and now you have two incompatible source formats, essentially, that you're kind of translating in between. I think you have to ask, if you're finding yourself in that incremental update, I think you have to ask yourself whether that's the right set of tools for what you're trying to do. Hmm. Okay. Because that friction that you have in between them isn't going to go away. Um, in our particular use case, we've addressed this because we're publishing one course at a time, and we okay. don't update them constantly. Um, and since it's just between you and me and nobody else, I will tell you that most of our small changes we've actually made in both places. So instead okay. of republishing, we tweak the WordPress, we tweak the source to keep them in alignment. But that's not a reasonable solution for what you're describing. Right? It works fine for us because we're making five changes a month. Right, right, okay. But if you're making um, constant releases or you know, quarterly releases making, of yeah. Doc. If you're making them constantly, then, then you're either going to invest more in the pipeline you know, okay. and make the pipeline more robust, or you're going to ask some really uncomfortable questions about mm. why you're going from A to B when A and B don't like each other very much. Interesting. Okay. So in that case, did it may not be the answer for everybody. Or Drupal may not be the answer. Well, okay. That's true. Too. Uh, you know, either way. Right. Um, one, one way of handling those kinds of issues is actually to partition off a, a chunk of the website so you have a chunk of the website that is produced directly from, let's say, your XML source, okay. and you have another mm. chunk of the website produced from something else. Now, the okay. problem you run into when you do that is around search okay. and trying to make sure that you can search across both things. Um, that, I think, is going to be a major issue in the next five years. Okay. Well, yeah, that's fair. Um, interesting. That's that's. I've never had that connect because I've always, you know, like I said, and it seems like 
as tech com people, we don't always get the choice of where our content's going to end up. It's, oh, the company's standardized on WordPress or our word, you know, everything's got to go into Drupal. So I guess we don't always get that option, but it's interesting to see that uh, there are options and different ways of thinking about it, which is not, okay, we have this, we have this, let's brute force and figure out how to get the thing into the CMS. That's so interesting. And I guess that's where consultants come in and say, hey, maybe this isn't the best solution for your business. We have done those kinds of integrations. And it makes sense to do them in some scenarios. But yeah, I think I would step back to the question of why are we trying to integrate them? And is, you know, is the, are there other options? What else can we do? Hmm. Is this the best choice? Okay. So let's talk about some of the things that you and Scriptorm have published. Uh, LearningData.com, how did that come about? Is that done solely in-house by your team? Um, so about a year and a half, maybe two years. Well, anyway. I wrote an article about the talent deficit in content strategy, which I think you've actually alluded to on, on another podcast. Yes, our um, last episode with uh, David Dylan Thomas, we brought up this exact topic. Right, and he was. I listened to that whole thing, and he was he was great. So for those of you listening to this, put that one in your queue. the The issue that we're running into is that DITA, XML in general, but DITA specifically, requires a an investment from the content creators in some skill sets that they need. Mm -hmm. And when you go and talk to a CIO or a CFO or a C whatever O, hmm. they start asking these awkward questions like, well, where am I going to get more data people? I mean, I can get word people anywhere. Hmm. Now we can discuss whether that's actually accurate, but, you know, because word people who can actually follow styles is perhaps an even more endangered species. <sighs> <Yes. laughs> so I, I get content in Excel a lot of the time because I work in I'm financial so services. So, um, you know, when we get it in word, it's actually a good thing. Oh, well, so word is, word is your happy place. That's, that's well, the saddest thing I've ever <laughs> Okay. So, um, so the CFO says, well, I'm going to train these people on DITA, and then they're going to have some skills, but what if they leave? I'm going to have to find more DITA people, and where am I going to go with that? And so we kicked this around for a while and eventually decided that we needed to put out some baseline DITA information that was e-learning as opposed to you know a book. There are some very good books out there, but what there isn't or wasn't was just some very sort of low-level introductory, here's what you need to know. This is DITA. This is what it is. We're not saying we're going to get you to be a configuration expert, but we're going to give you what you need to at least get your foot in the door and understand what this thing is all about. Um, we have had um, we have had support from another number of other organizations. We have several companies that are sponsoring it and mm. have you know contributed financially. And we also have uh, people who have uh, agreed to participate with us and to help us actually produce the content. So they're actually writing information, contributing it into the open source project, and then we're able to move that over to learning data. Um, hmm. So it's been a, a small group, but definitely a group effort in getting that up and running. And we are just so pleased because there are you know hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people that have registered and gone nice. through the courses and have said, hey, this actually got me started. Um, we hope to have some additional courses out fairly soon. We're working on some stuff. And um, for those of you that are interested in this and have some data expertise, we would love to get presentation or you know additional content and participation hmm. from them. So I'll put that out there as well. 
Yes, we'll have to put that in show notes where they can contact you about that. Mm-hmm. Now, can they contribute directly to the GitHub repository or is it that's kind of where the packaging happens and you're doing all the aggregation behind the scenes? The GitHub repository is is an open source project licensed under the same um, license as the Ditto Open Toolkit. So it's an Apache 2.0 license. Mm-hmm. And anybody can certainly contribute into that. You know, there's obviously some uh, administrative, you know, you have to issue a pull request and those kinds of things inside GitHub. But yes, we would welcome participation from anyone there. Um, we then take that information as it comes in and package it up and move it over into learning Ditta. Um, but I think the key thing is that the Ditta training content itself is open source. So if you wanted to take that and build out your own e-learning site somewhere else, you certainly could. Now, are you seeing people forking the GitHub repository and kind of making it their own? I've seen people fork it in order to look at it. I don't okay. see a whole lot of people you know, going off and doing other things with it because I think at this point, the value of having that sort of more centralized place mm. where we can put it all together, it's so early. Right. Um, okay. But certainly, if, if that's something that you wanted to do, you are more than welcome to do so. And for those not familiar with Git or GitHub, uh, Git is a, it originally started as a version control, and now GitHub um, seems to be a repository for all kinds of open source stuff. And when you make a copy for your own use and kind of modify it, that's known as forking. Um, but it sounds like, you know, everything's kind of canonical at learningdata.com and people are contributing there, but potentially they could, you know, take it and, you know, if they wanted to fork it and modify it internally for a company, they could do something like that. We, right. So we are using the content that's in the data training repository and moving it over to learning data. That's kind of our okay. application of gotcha. data training. So um, about, go ahead. We have uh, some preliminary discussions and we actually hope to have some localized versions of it available in the oh, not nice. too distant future. Oh, that's cool. So let's talk then about the Content Strategy 101 site, where you basically are giving a version, um, you're basically giving the entire book away online. People can download it and buy it by a Kindle, I believe, or by Amazon. But if they want to go ahead and click through page after page after page online, they can get that same content. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. The whole and then how? There. I'm sorry? The whole thing's there. Nice. So, how is that working out? Are you seeing. Um, are you seeing sales based on the, the site or are you seeing people just how, I guess, how's the traffic? How's your audience coming? And is it translating to sales? Yeah, that is the million dollar question. Yeah. So um, the traffic is pretty good and we're pleased with that. Um, so rarely do we get these emails along the lines of, hey, I just read this article and, you know, here's a bucket of money. <laughs> uh, so it's a. It doesn't work that really, way. It really doesn't. Uh, hardly ever does somebody walk up to me at a conference and hand me a check. Um, it has happened, but it's pretty unusual. Um, so really, it's just a part of that sort of customer awareness building, marketing, whatever you want to call it. People need information. We put that information out there. And of course, we recognize that there are tons and tons of people reading that site that will never okay. call us, that are not you know, they're not going to hire us to do anything. But I think the reality is that the people, the set of people who are prospective customers for us, giving them additional information is not going to suddenly turn them into dedicated do-it-yourselfers. Mm, okay. 
And the people who don't have budget and have to do this themselves no matter what, mm -hmm. okay. the presence or absence of information that we provide does not affect that decision, right? It's, a, it's, a, it's an issue that's internal to their organization or whatever. So my position on this is that we need to get this information out there and make it available, have people read it and say, this worked for me, this didn't work for me, you need to improve this, this could be better. And if we can do that, then eventually the ones that need us will kind of filter out of that. Interesting. So that's a good approach. So you're basically looking at it as a value add. Here it is, you know, it's out there. And if you want to contact us, please, please give us lots of money. We, we like the please give us lots of money part. Um, but we just take the long view that, you know, we need to be out there. We need to make this information right. available. And if people agree with our sort of position, philosophy, approach, whatever you want to call that, they will eventually get in touch with us. Excellent. Excellent. Well, thank you for putting it all out there. You're obviously out there quite a bit between the learning data side and the uh, content strategy 101 side, as well as the books that you've published in the past. So um, I've always been a firm believer of giving back, and I uh, appreciate the efforts of you and Scriptorium. Um, so we've alluded to it a little bit before that you said kind of that data is the best solution for now. And we know that you posted last year about your experience at TCOM in Germany. Is it TCOM? It is. That there's kind of, um, it seemed like it was kind of anti-DITA. Um, is, is that a correct assessment? And uh, do you think that DITA, you know, is going to go away in the future and that we're going to move to something else? Or is DITA kind of here to stay? Or XML, I guess I should say, is here to stay. The I am sure that at some point in the future, there will be something that replaces DITA. Okay. I am unclear on what that would be. Hmm. And as far as I know, it doesn't exist at this point. <laughs> uh, because if it did, we would go, you know, pursue that. Because we're, you know, we're interested in finding the best possible solution to solve the problems that, you know, that we have and that our customers have. So, you know, it's like that old line from Winston Churchill, you know, it's the worst option except for all the others. <laughs> now, he was referring to democracy, but hmm. the point may or may not still stand. So TCOM, um, TCOM was not in and of itself anti-DITA. You know, it wasn't okay. that it's a big, big, big conference, uh, something like 3,500 people. Oh, wow. Yeah. And, and let's just, be, um, just a little history that TCOM is the German um, Technical Communication Conference. Yes. And there is a TCOM uh, association. Okay. Which um, does, certainly started out of Germany. They're, they're headquartered in Stuttgart. But they have conferences. They're doing work in France, and uh, I'm on the advisory board for a session in uh, Bulgaria. They have hmm. a TC World India conference that they've been putting on oh, for a couple okay. of years, which I've actually presented at as well. And they have an event coming up in uh, Shanghai in April, hmm. uh, which incidentally I'm also involved in. Oh, nice. So, so I've worked I've worked very closely with the uh, the leadership at TCOM, and we should probably you know put that out there just to begin with. But what happened at TCOM in November in Stuttgart was that there were a number of presentations there that were uh, that that were attempting to set up essentially a choice between DITA or uh, what they're calling German CMS. So there are a number of content management systems that are built in Germany, 
and mm -hmm. that are, for the most part, they're XML, but they are um, a proprietary XML created okay. by that particular vendor. So, so it's basically lock-in. Well, their argument essentially is that the lock-in that you get from something like that is no different than the lock-in that you realistically get from going to DITA. Because you have to configure DITA, and then you need a CMS, and hey, wait, now you're back to lock-in because you've chosen a system. Okay. So, I, you know, I, I don't really want to make their argument for them because <laughs> there, were some, there were some issues. But the bottom line is this. Um, if, if you do your analysis and you think carefully about what your options are in terms of systems and tools and structures and all the rest of it, then you should be able to go through and figure out whether something data-based or something not data-based is the better solution for you. Um, we try to, uh, to be agnostic on that point, you know, that we're trying to figure out what is the best solution for our customers, not what is the best data-based solution or how do we advocate for data, but in fact, what is the best solution to your particular business problems. Now, the reason that there was such a, a big mess at TCOM is this. Um, in, in the U.S. today, when a company goes looking to um, make some decisions about a content management system, they very often, and by very often I mean always, make the, they, they do the content modeling decision first. So the first thing they say is, should we be in DITA or not? Should we be in DocBook? Should we be in S1000D? Um, should we do a custom XML something something? Hmm. In the U.S., some enormous percentage of the people doing that specific evaluation are landing on DITA. And then okay. step two is, okay, we've decided on DITA as our content model. Now let's go think about which system we should implement. Okay. That implies they're not even going to look hmm. at any CMSs that are not DITA-based, right? Because they've okay. already decided we want DITA. Gotcha. In Germany, the market has been different. In Germany, what has happened is that um, these various CMS systems that are out there have, uh, or the evaluation process in Germany typically is much more based on workflow and process, okay. and then the content model comes later. So first, we look at workflow and process, make some decisions about what kind of workflows you need to support, make a decision about CMS based on that, and then look at okay, well, we'll use that CMS, and oh, it has this kind of a content model, fine, whatever. Hmm. That difference in perspective or approach hmm. or analysis or whatever you want to call it is why the market share of DITA in the U.S., which is you know very high on the XML side, right. versus Germany, where it's very, very low, hmm. is different. Okay, huh. Because I, I mean... I guess you could look at it both ways, but it seems like the way that they are looking at it, it kind of makes, well, I guess a little bit more sense if you're getting started instead of, okay, here's the solution. What's the question? So I think their position is that the workflow and process features that they bring to the table are more important than the content model. Okay. Oh, okay. So they're not, oh. okay. I see why this is an issue. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, let's leave that there then. I think that's been covered. And if uh, you want to read about more, you can go to Sarah's uh, blog post and we'll post that in the show notes on edmarsh.com. Um, so let's, um, 
you know, let's go back to the personal side. I've built this now as the people behind the content. And we know, Sarah, that you um, are part of the technical communication knitting cabal. Do you want to tell <laughs> us about um, your group of friends who like to knit? So, yes, we do have a, a technical uh, technical committee, uh, technical, I can't even say it, <laughs> technical communication knitting subcommittee, uh, or possibly cabal is, is maybe better, secret society, it's not very secret. Uh, <laughs> No, a few of them have and, been uh, and I'm going to list podcast. out a few. I'm going to list out a few people, and then I'm, and if I do that, I'm going to forget some. So let's uh, let's be careful with that. Mm. But it turns out that there are um, actually quite a few of us that, in addition to doing weird tech com things, also mm. enjoy knitting. Now, I actually think what's going on here is that a lot of us have hobbies outside of tech com that tend to be very tactile and very kind of 3D and very not computerish. Hmm. I've found people that do, uh, you know, woodworking. There's a couple of people that fly planes. Um, there's uh, Tony Self is infamously very into uh, Mini Cooper and okay. goes to meetups along those lines. So I think what's what's really going on is that you have a group. Of, oh, and there are uh, weavers and quilters and, and spinners and all sorts of crazy things. <laughs> I think what's going on is that we're all looking for something that is not... Uh, behind a computer screen. Hmm. Okay. You know, you come home, you've, you've been at work and you want to do something that is not on a computer because that's, that's your day. Gotcha. Right. Um, so what it's turned into though, is that, you know, it makes for a very entertaining kind of social event because we're at a lot of conferences, we've had uh, pub crawls and those kinds of things, mm. which I'm completely for and I think are great. <laughs> um, we've also started doing yarn crawls. Oh, wow. Now, a yarn crawl is when you go from yarn store to yarn store. Okay. Jeez. Uh, possibly purchasing things. Well, okay, usually purchasing things. <laughs> uh, limited only by that infamous carry-on bag that only has so much room in it. <laughs> yeah, um, yarn's compressible, isn't it? It, it is possible <laughs> that on occasion I have thrown away some older clothes on my way home. Oh, my goodness. To make room for yarn. It Maybe. <laughs> Um, also, I'm not the only one who's done that. <laughs> so, and it, and it gives us something to do and to talk about that is outside of the, um, you know, the sort of professional side of things. Um, I know there are a bunch of, and I think you're one of them. There are people who homebrew. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Bill and Angelos yep. and I are all homebrewers. Yep. I'm sure there's yeah. many Oh, and Bill says there. hi, by the way. Yes. Um, um, he actually, we spoke about having him on the podcast, but I figure I should probably get his boss on first. <laughs> well, you could, he would, he would have far more to say about beer than I do. Um, I True. drink it when I'm in Germany. And, uh, in fact, another, you know, entertaining thing about TCOM is that they typically do have 5 PM receptions with beer and pretzels. Nice. In the My vendor kind of hall. And I ran into one guy, um, you know, two nights in a row, and two nights in a row at 5, 10 p.m., I was holding a beer and a pretzel. And he said, you know, you're, you really, you constantly have beer. And I said, I don't think you understand. You've just seen 80% of my annual beer consumption. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so there are, you know, yeah, there are definitely a group of us out there that are interested in, you know, knitting and crocheting. There are some quilters. I've tried quilting. I'm bad at it. Um, hmm. There are a couple of people that weave. 
which I would like to try, but I'm running out of space in my house here. Only so many <laughs> hobbies that take up large amounts of space. Um, and I think that it's just one of those things where when you sit in front of a computer all day, you really want to do something that's not in front of a computer. Yeah, I do that all the time. I'm on the computer and I come home and I do more computer stuff. So I guess I have a problem, but uh, <laughs> that's why I homebrew as well, I guess. Um, so when you are not at conferences with your knitting folks, do you meet up online? Do you Skype? I mean, do you keep it? How do you keep in touch? Uh, mostly Facebook. Oh, okay. So we're mostly on Facebook. You see some Twitter uh, go by as well. But, you know, in terms of the knitting sort of cabal, um, that's a very informal thing that you'll see people post on Facebook and mm. tag their knitting friends saying, hey, okay. uh, Sharon did this the other day, she, Sharon mm. Burton. She posted a note saying she was trying to figure out what pattern to do next, and she had this lovely yarn, and she had a picture of that um, or referred back to one. And, you know, we all piped up with all sorts of ideas for what you could do with it, which, of course, then I promptly was looking at all these things that other people had posted so that I could figure out you know, is this something that I would like to try? You know, were there some patterns in there? Um, now, I should probably also mention, this seems to come up in all my TechCom conversations. <laughs> there is a social network specifically for uh, knitting and crocheting. That doesn't surprise me, but okay. It's called Ravelry. Oh, nice. R-A-V-E-L-R-Y.com. And it is if you you know included in the show notes it is an unbelievable yeah, well, place there are six million people there holy cow and they, really uh-huh six and million some ungodly number of patterns wow. and they have a pattern browser that is an example of faceted search done right you can oh, go really? into you can go into this pattern browser and say show me only patterns that are free i have this many yards of, of this type of yarn and I want something that is rated, you know, five stars by the users and also easy. Hmm, okay. Um, and then you can specify that you want a shawl or a scarf or a hat or mittens or, you know, whatever it is that you're trying to make. It is an unbelievable resource and it is a site that is used, you know, very heavily. I have yet to run into a knitter who doesn't use Ravelry. Hmm, okay. Now that's a and the, it is a community. And the funny thing about it is that I will go into these presentations and ask, okay, who, you know, who here knits? And five hands go up. Hmm. Who here has heard of Ravelry? And the same five hands stay up. <laughs> you know, among that community, everybody knows about it. And what's interesting to me is there are apparently similar networks for everything you could imagine. You know, these, right. these sort of social networks out there for different communities of interest. And if you're outside that community, you have no idea it exists. Right. So what can we as technical communicators learn from a community like that? Or even a website like that? Well, I think the interesting question to ask is what, you know, what in your particular industry, what is the equivalent? Where do those people hang hmm. out? Um, you know, you mentioned a, a headset. Um, I, I didn't catch, quite catch the name of it, but you mentioned a, you know, an audio forum. Yeah, it's called HeadFi, H-E-A-D-F-I.org. And it's a place where everyone goes and does reviews or asks, you know, what kind of headphones should I use? But it's basically, as far as I know, the place to go for headphone research. Right. So, and it turns out that for our, our customers, you know, you will discover that there is one of these for everything. You know? mm, it's true. 
And, and, and as an, you know, what, whoever your, you know, your employer or your customer is, you really do need to find out where does that community hang out? Hmm. And, you know, can you get involved there and can you participate there? And, you know, of course they, it gets complicated if you're in a regulated industry, you know, medical devices have some serious issues around community. Um, <laughs> but most of the rest of us can kind of do our thing and can kind of go hang out there and participate and get engaged in that community and understand what are they looking for? What are their priorities? What things make them happy or not happy in the tools that we're dealing with? You know, in the products that you're putting out, what's in there that they like that they don't like? Good point. Good point. Um, so the last thing I wanted to ask you, uh, and this is again from your bio, is that you have an aversion to raw tomatoes. And as a person who absolutely loves tomatoes and eats them year round, even when they're horrible and mealy like they are this time of year. Uh, I can't get enough tomatoes and this aversion to raw tomatoes is kind of baffling to me. So can you explain what's going on there? Well, so for starters, I will tell you that you are welcome to my share of them. Um, <laughs> I'll even take the them. good ones. So you can have those. Um, I will cheerfully eat, to, and I like them, tomatoes in salsa, Tomato sauce, ketchup, you know, really any sun-dried tomatoes, really anything that's been processed. Okay. But I have tried and tried and tried, and I cannot bring myself to eat raw tomatoes, even the good ones. Hmm. You know, oh, you'll like this one. Um, fried green tomatoes I tolerate hmm. barely, but they're not my favorite thing. Um, I also don't like eggplant. So uh, okay. my position is that those are members of the deadly nightshade family. And... <laughs> In a feeble effort to justify this, uh, that's what I'm going with. But yeah, I don't know what it is, but they just do not work for me. So don't eat the deadly berries is what you're saying. I'm, I'm going <laughs> with that. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll, we'll go with that. So thank you, Sarah, uh, for coming on the show. Uh, it's been a big, uh, a big moment for me personally. Um, thank you for sharing your insight and your experience um, and your aversion to tomatoes, which I'll still never get. Uh, thankfully, I live in Jersey where we get the best tomatoes in, in the summer. Um, I make so, up for it by eating chocolate. So. Now, that's true. You're a big chocolate person. I uh, I don't eat as much chocolate as I eat tomatoes, and that's probably a good thing. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so can you remind us again uh, where we can find you online? Where's the best place to find you and all your, your work? Absolutely. Ed, thank you so much. This is a lot of fun. This is great. And I know how hard it is to, you know, to put these together and make it look easy. So thank you for that. Hey. Um, you can find us at scriptorium.com, S-C-R-I-P-T-O-R-I-U-M. Um, we briefly considered uh, scriptorium, which probably would have led to way more profit, but we decided against it. Mm, um, so scriptorium.com. Um, my Twitter ID is, is my name exactly how it's spelled, minus for some unknown reason the apostrophe. Hmm. So Sarah, at Sarah O'Keefe, uh, scriptorium also tweets at scriptorium and right. then from there you can find all the other things you need whether it's um email skype and and all the rest of it those are all on our website and you can also find learning data and content strategy 101 there oh yes so learning okay. data is is exactly where learningdata.com and the content strategy book is at contentstrategy101.com and i do believe yeah we have links out to those or at least i hope we do I and check yeah, we'll also put those in the show notes if you haven't heard them enough times. Uh, we'll link to them right from there. 
Uh, you can find the show notes and more about me at edmarsh.com. You can find the podcast at edmarsh.com slash podcast. And you can always find me on Twitter at edmarsh, all one word. Um, you can also subscribe to the Content Content Podcast on iTunes. And please write us a review. We haven't gotten any up there yet. So please let us know how we're doing. Uh, if you're on Android, you can go to edmarsh.com slash podcast and subscribe using your favorite app. And now, uh, this is exciting, you can also get the podcast on TuneIn Radio and the Google Play Music Podcast Store uh, whenever that's available to you. I still don't have it yet, and I'm driving crazy because I want to see my podcast up there. Uh, so Google, flip the switch and let me get that podcast stuff. Um, finally... I'll be presenting my Social Media for Technical Communicators presentation at the STC Philly Metro Chapters Conduit Conference on April 2nd. Uh, I've been going to this conference for several years. It's a one-day conference in uh, south, south of Philly, and it's really intimate. It's a great place to come and meet people and come to learn. So come check it out, and if you do, uh, be sure to say hello. So um, again, Sarah, thanks for, thanks for your time today. I uh, hope you uh, are cozy and stay inside on your icebound day. Um, and for everyone else out there, thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time.